Retro Rebel is brought to you by TempleofGeek.com. One-stop shop for all things geek. You can find all of our episodes and familiar sci-fi, fantasy, and geek culture-related at TempleofGeek.com. Welcome to the Retro Rebel Gamecast, where we discuss gaming and related topics. Retro Rebels release some Fridays, and you can find this episode and much more by heading to simplogeek.com or wherever you download your favorite podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Retro Rebel Podcast. My name is Stacey, and with me as always is my fellow Rebel Brothers. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. How was your summer? It is currently raining. As it has oh. been doing pretty much every day for the last month. So my summer has been shite. <laughs> so so very English summer? Is this or Yeah, well it usually doesn't rain this much. Usually the British summer is quite glorious. We have light until ten PM at night, like it's really bright, it's warm, but not too oppressive. It's not very humid, so it's like more of a middle of the road heat you know it's it's usually a balmy like 85 degrees which is nice except when you come inside because we don't have aircon so that's not so nice but you know up until that point it's nice (laughs) um but uh it's not been that case this year which for better or worse probably good you know keeping people more indoors and and not mixing so much because uh you know we're the Delta variant headquarters, as uh, the world will be aware. So, um, right. Uh, thankfully, maybe the weather is preventing quite as much resurgence as as you might see other places. But the weather has given us time to play games. Nice. Yes, absolutely, and and uh, we will be discussing that. Um, so, it's just hot here. Incredibly hot. Um, and we've both been busy. I've been I've been very busy this this summer with kids, sports, and uh, just to add to the list of things that I normally do on a regular basis. So, as if as if there was enough time to add stuff uh, to what makes my life busy, um, just decided to add some more. So um, so pile it on. It's like Thanksgiving dinner. Just add more. Well, we have we have some brand new listeners to our show. I recently joined an online Dungeons and Dragons group, and they are oh. very avid listeners of our podcast. So shout out to Tank and Johnny UK and Steve from DMD, as I'm fairly certain you will download and listen to this podcast sort of in your own time. So fantastic. Well, I hope it was worth it. Let's make it so. Make it so number one. Yeah, um, you make it so number one. Uh, so what have you been playing Uh, so I downloaded a ton of games um, which I'm going to be playing over the next couple of weeks Um, they're all on the game pass so there's The Ascent which is a dungeon crawler Back for Blood which is made by the people who made Left for Dead a game I love Um, Dark Alliance by D&D simply because I'm playing D&D and I want to check it out uh, Genesis War, which I probably won't play a lot of because it looks very much like a game that you would like, Stacey. Um, yeah. Immortal Realms, which is like some sort of vampire thing. I'm worried it might be a JRPG vampire thing, but we'll see. Um, the yeah. box art looks a little JRPG for me. Um, Ono, which is adorable looking um, puzzler, which isn't my style, but I'll give it a try because it just looks so cute. Um, Outriders, which I think is an RPG, Planet Coaster, because why not? Um, Prey, because I remember when I was in college, there was a huge amount of game hype about this game, and then I swear it didn't come out for decades or something. Like, it's crazy. So I've never been able to play it, and I know it was quite, like, a hyped game. Like, (laughs) I don't want to date myself too much, but, uh, you know, 12 years ago. Um, so I'm keen to see what that was like. And then, uh, Torchlight 3, I don't remember what it was. The box art looked cool. Uh, and then I spent the last two weeks playing Tropico 6 and Children of Morha. So Tropico 6 is a Sims City stroke civilization revolution hybrid where you are a nondescript South American warlord of sorts, stroke dictator. Uh, yeah. And there are several different objective-based missions 
where you try to maintain your power while achieving these objectives. Um, and uh, if the people vote you out, then you lose. Uh, if you don't meet the objectives, then you lose. And various things can happen when people uh, aren't happy with certain aspects of the way that you run your government. Uh, okay. Is it fun? Yes. But after about, I probably played 18 hours of it. Uh, and I got through the first, like, maybe four or five missions. And then I decided this is going to be the same thing every time, isn't it? You know, like, they give me mission. I increase that single stat. I pretty much can just ignore the rest of them and then wait for the timer to go out. Like, that, you know, that's sort of how it goes. If you have an idea of what you're supposed to be aiming towards in terms of ultimate goal, whether you want to be a communist society or capitalist society or militaristic or whatever, you can really min-max in that direction. and then the game isn't that challenging anymore. I oh, okay. maybe would have enjoyed doing the sandbox. There is a sandbox option, but after spending so much time playing the game and with so many other things to play, I thought, oh, I've had fun with this, but I'm going to leave it alone now. So it's worth picking up. It's fun for an afternoon. You can, you know, you, you can really come to terms with it quite quickly. And it is very tongue in cheek and at times, you know, because you are, sort of a pseudo-Columbian dictator, so that is quite amusing. You can give speeches about how, like, you're aware of this and that, but, you know, beloved leader will ensure that this doesn't happen. It's quite funny, but um, it, it is very much the same after you get through the first couple of missions. So um, then after that, I played a Children of Morza, which is, I think, your speed. It is very hard. I will say right now, I'm fairly certain that you are supposed to die a lot because there okay. are like cutscenes in between each attempt that unlock yeah. different things. So I think I think you're just supposed to die tons. I they have like a timer on how long you lasted in the dungeon. So I think it is supposed to be fairly difficult. Um, I had it on standard. There is like higher levels than when I had it up, but there is no easy mode. So it can get a bit frustrating, and um, I did record some content for um, Twitch where I exploited some of the game mechanics in order to kill a boss without them being able to attack me, which is not what is supposed to happen, but it right. just sort of highlights that Children of Morta, while a very fun game, may not be the best mechanically designed because essentially you can kite any number of enemies over to this specific type of door and they can't get through, but you can kill them from there. So, you know, if, if you understand how to exploit game mechanics, you may find some sections easier than others, especially if they have that type of door, but it does have couch co-op, which since I live alone, I cannot avail of, but I would have loved to do it because at the tutorial, you do get a second player that comes with you. These are all members of the same family. And it's really sort of heartwarming because, like, the mom doesn't want the little son to, like, learn how to throw daggers. But he goes off and learns it on his own. So then, you know, she says, well, if you're going to do it anyway, like, let us train you. There's, like, an old grandma involved. The dad's there. So, like, the whole family is sort of involved. The daughter's an archer. The dad's, like, sword and shield. The kid is, like, more like a daggery, knifey sort of one. And you kind of unlock the different family characters as it goes on, and you're supposed to be cleansing the world of this taint, this like black sort of ichor that comes out and infects things. I don't know, it, it's very charming. It is a bit complex on the mechanics side of things once you start to collect items that will be procking and aggroing things, which maybe you didn't want to aggro. You know, when you shield, you do lower damage. So it's a trade-off. You know, health potions randomly yeah. drop and, you know, you cannot take any with you. So it's about kiting and not taking too much damage. It's a really fun game, but it, I would say it is fairly hard. You know, yeah. if you just yeah. like to breeze through and, and learn a story, this is not a game for that. But there are ways to sort of crack out with the level design. And if you want to see that, I've linked to my Twitch. I don't, that's not the way the game's meant to be played, but it is a way to play it if you are crappy like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's cool. Yeah, you know, I have not, uh, I'll have to check that one out. That one's free on Game Pass, right? Yeah, it's really nice. It's very beautiful. It's deep, saturated jewel tones, you know, like the green of my eyeshadow today. Very, like, saturated. It, it isn't this sort of dark, 
colorless, which I think a lot of indie games are. Like, it's very deep, saturated, colorful. Like, it's nice, actually. I think it's it's very nice to look at. Um, yeah. And it's pretty intuitive, but it is hard. Uh, sweet. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. There's one I checked out on Game Pass. I think you, you might like. I, I know the last one I recommended didn't sound as much as something you'd be interested in, but uh, The Ascent. Have you seen much about The Ascent? It's on Game Pass. I've downloaded that. Yeah, it's also okay. from the look of it a dungeon crawler. I'm. It's on my list. I think when you have Game Pass, you get day one access to that. You one, do, actually. and so I've been. I've played it a little bit. Uh, it is co-op as well, so it's not a game that we could actually play together. Um, and I think anyway, I think you can play it remote access co-op. Um, but it's a cyberpunk. Uh, so maybe they they did it better than uh, Cyberpunk 2077 uh, out of the gate in terms of the atmosphere. Uh, I've watched multiple reviews on this, and and everything has been fairly positive, uh, other than the fact that you know this kind of came from a smaller studio, so some of the depth in terms of story wasn't was lacking maybe. But again, I haven't gotten that far into it. It's been fun to play. It's you know it's got all the colors. And uh, cyberpunk element, and so uh, you know the little bit that I've gotten to play so far uh, has been good. So it's it's on Game Pass if you've got that. That's something that um, I thought would just kind of up your alley. Um, yeah, I already day one like pre-downloaded that because it definitely looked like something I'd be into. Yeah, I thought so. And Hades is coming out too, and I don't think Hades Hades is a dungeon crawler. Not a Souls like so for as much. It's made by Supergiant, I believe, which is it's the same uh, publisher, the same I'm sorry, development studio that made Pyre. You know, one of my favorite games and the one that you just <laughs> oh yeah, you talked about that uh, for like six months, maybe it's more. Such a good game. Well, it's like Disco Elysium. Those are three games that uh, I have a feeling Hades will be one of those that I'll probably talk about when it comes out. on. Oh my God, Disco Elysium. That's the other one you would shush up about. I almost bought it on game on Xbox because it's a little bit harder for me to get on my PC when my kids have to use it. Now that I have an Xbox uh, Series S, um, I have a system I can play. Uh, and so I go over and play it on that. And, and um <laughs> So I'd have it in two places. I would have purchased it twice, but it's one of those games made by a smaller studio that's super deep. And if yeah. you ever, and I know I, and I'm gonna, I blame you for opening that can of worms, even though you didn't do it. The, uh, what's really cool about that game is that it's like a choose your own adventure book. If you took the wrong path, your story can end like immediately. The game's over immediately. Or if you make, if you just change one or two decisions, You'll play for another six hours, but then you may get to a point where you can't beat the game just because of some decisions you make. And you're like, well, shit, now i got to start over. Then you do the same thing oh, wow. again, and you make – so it's it, – uh, or you might be able to beat it, but you, you're going to have to go about it a different a different way. And there are certain, there may be certain parts of the game you can't access because of the choices that you made. So it's very deep in terms of the mechanics and, and the story. So, uh, But anyway, Hades is, is a different type of game, different style. So um, kind of a, a hack and flash. Oh, man, I don't even know. It's not a hack and flash. You die a lot. You have to finish the game multiple times, but that's the point of the game is uh, every time you finish, you go back through and you, you get new parts of the story. So um, it's, it's the, that whole hamster wheel element is actually a part of the game. Uh, right. <laughs> but the last two that uh, I probably have spent the most time on uh, or maybe the most random two. Well, one of them's not random. The other one is super random. So I went ahead and bought Spider-Man Miles Morales um, on PlayStation. It is. Oh my God! Uh, here we go, Miles Morales. It's, it's just the same. It's more of the same from Spider-Man game, which was one of the best games I've played in ten years. And so, I mean, if he's got different powers, and obviously his story is different, and some of his uh, villains are different, but it's the same game. So if you like that, you would very much like this. It's good. Uh, so I've enjoyed that. And it's another one of those games that I could park my brain and just kind of play. 
and and uh but were we right with our original thinking that it isn't really a full game it's more of an add-on yeah it's it, from what i understand it's more of an add-on it's a, i think it's about half the length of the original spider-man maybe a little more than half the length um i don't think it's as deep with the collectibles and that was one of my my positives my pluses for the first oh, yeah you love those bloody backpacks and all <laughs> I, I hate collectibles like i hate going through but they made getting these so much fun and just seamlessly part of you're going to this, this to complete this quest there are 10 collectibles on the way so it's like they didn't make you have to search and go you're gonna have to go to that place anyway so we might as well get all these things right. to play um and uh so there's just something about that when people do it right developers do it right collectibles can be fun a thousand flags or doves or whatever you do in, in a assassin's creed is just trash you know it's busy work to pad the game this this seemed to be kind of seamlessly woven in so. <laughs> but the most random one and the one that's taking up the most hard drive space but it's just very cathartic and is flight simulator Oh my God, no, absolutely not. Oh my gosh, I am so bad at it. I am so bad at it. But, oh you know, you can, from all the different locations that you can pick from and and landing and, and it's just, again, it's one of those games. Wasn't that, that the like preliminary title of the Windows 95 release? You know, like absolutely. I... Absolutely. I seem to remember like playing it on the PC and they'd be like, oh, you're going to stall, you're going to stall. Like, oh, how much direction? Because it was always inverted and it was too hard. This game wasn't well, really. But it's very hard. It was very hard. It's very hard. Um, but it, <laughs> well, it's kind of a relief to know that flying a plane isn't super easy, you know? like. <laughs> well, and I, I, you know, I'm just going to assume it all goes past because all the things you have to worry about, the wind, you've got like multiple buttons that if you push then your plane goes this way and then it starts to rotate right. and you just die so um fortunately there's no fiery <laughs> crashes there are no like warning bells it's just like oh we're gonna so oh, we're not gonna make oh there's a okay we'll start over you know so <laughs> uh and so anyway it, it's just one of those that's kind of like if you ever played pilot wings on on like the super nintendo which i know you didn't but if you did I mean, uh, no. You it you know that I owned a total of three games for Super Nintendo. Yeah, and the Empire we discussed was this. one of them. So, no. uh, it was one of those like SimCity that had really good, like, uh, pleasant background music to, you know, to just do whatever you were doing, you know, just kind of check your brain and play. And so, uh, Flight Simulator is a lot like that. I mean, it's not it's a pretty game. It's a very pretty game. But it definitely looks like a tech demo more than it does anything else. And uh and it's but it was on Game Pass, it was free, uh, with whatever you pay for Game Pass and so but it does take up a hundred and like a hundred I saw games. that, that's why I didn't install it. It's insane. That's not the only game that takes up tons of space. I I tried to install something else recently. I think it was like a remastered ed edition of some game I had played before, and it was like a hundred and fourteen gigs. I was like, with what? With where I'd have to yeah. delete half the games on this hard drive to be able to achieve that. Yeah. I don't know. It makes no sense to me. Well, the the best part of all of this is that my three and a half year old Vivian, she is uh, like, I want to play Spider Man. I want to play Spider Man. And so I have put her. I'll, I'll boot it up and I'll give her the PlayStation controller. And she's three and a half and she swings through the city of New York. She's just. She'll hit the button and she'll know to what to do sort of now. She gets stuck all the time. But the fact that she can do it and she will do it and she'll do it for like, you know, 30 or 45 minutes. She'll just swing through New York and Spider-Man and she'll run on the ground and run up a building and then accidentally hit the swing button again. And it's everything that she wanted to do to begin with. So, uh, <laughs> that uh, and she plays a little Mario Kart. So. And she figured Aww. all that stuff on her own. Uh, so Clever I'll, little cookie. I'll at least have one gamer of my children. I think, so. Excellent. You know. Oh well. But anyway, that's what I've been playing, and, and it and I it has been fun, and I have played an eclectic group of games. Looking forward to the ones that are actually coming out in all. So, at least some games. 
Yeah, same. All right. So that brings us to the news. What kind of news? We got, you got three news. I just have I one, have really. News. I have three news. Uh, so let's do a news sandwich. Let's start off with uh, in things you shouldn't do when you have an important job. Uh, <laughs> someone who is claiming to be ex-military has leaked the British tank specs for the Challenger 2 tank, which makes up the majority of our fleet, from my understanding. Um, and as far as I know, those were never decommissioned because they, I believe, are still actively part of our fleet. Um, and so it's a matter of uh, British national security that this person has purportedly leaked these tank specs to the game War Thunder. Um, and I guess he got into an argument with someone else on the forums that the tank didn't function the way it's supposed to in real life. And his, well, I know what I'm talking about, was leaking controversial uh, documents onto the public server. So um, in case you needed someone to tell you, don't leak company, paramilitary, or public sector documents into a video game. You know, if you need to leak them, there are places where WikiLeaks, whatever, but they shouldn't be used to win video game arguments on the internet. So that's that's my uh, public service it. announcement. Not worth it. Yeah. Um, the next piece is that Netflix is actually going to start making video games from some roles that they placed online and the brand new hire of the XEA boss as a head of game development underneath the network's Netflix brand. So it'll be interesting to see how they achieve that because Netflix as a streaming service is across multiple platforms, all of the consoles that I'm aware of, Fire Stick, your computer, mobile devices, tablets. So I'm not certain how they're going to achieve video games that work across all of those platforms. Even Microsoft's new xCloud requires you to have a Bluetooth controller in order to play those games on whatever platform you're going to play them on. So I'm interested to see how Netflix is going to achieve that. Um, also, for many, at least in the UK, Netflix streaming bandwidth is often not part of a data allowance for people's phones and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see if the mobile network carriers still uphold that when suddenly they're streaming 50 gigabyte games. Um, so that'll be interesting um, because there are lots of plans where Netflix is just included. So that doesn't count towards your go out data allowance. You can watch Netflix and it's fine. Um, so that's quite interesting. If they make games, maybe they'll be more successful than Google. I mean, they have been successful at pretty much everything they've done in the streaming space. So it's probably very premeditated. I'm sure they have an answer for how you would play it. But based on my own experiences playing games with the Fire Stick remote, uh, it is not made for this. Like, <laughs> so uh, I, I hope they're not planning to use television remotes as the way that you play these games because... It really is not comfortable. Um, yeah, it's it's not very intuitive, not comfortable. And actually, the buttons of remotes fail fairly quickly when you click them consecutively. Um, it really does weaken, at least for a while, the, um, the components inside it. And you'll notice that they feel less responsive. And then I guess maybe they cool off or whatever, you know, because your hands grip around it. You're warming all the components for like quite a long time while you're playing this game and it doesn't work as well. So um, I, it's, it's interesting to see, but I thought that was a fun piece of news. Interesting. Yeah. Well, what's uh, well, uh, so uh, I just thought of one other thing. The, what are your thoughts initially on the Steam, the Steam Deck? Have you seen or looked at this? Yeah, I've, I've seen the Steam Deck, and I think for people who are avid players of Steam, like religiously get the Humble Bundle and all sorts, like that's a really great option for them. But yeah. non-PC gamers have been surviving quite handily without participating in steam so i don't think i don't think it will attract console gamers into the fold i think it will provide a new option for people who already play pc to consume more of their games 
but I yeah. don't think because because why would I choose a device that costs a third as much and presumably is going to work a third as well when the Rolls Royce of gaming is readily available to me? It, it just doesn't make sense. And I don't think that PC gamers on the hardcore spectrum are going to be interested because their PCs are better than anything that could be in a console. So right. I think it's a difficult market niche. I think it will be. Um, I think it'd be below the 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 switch, but I'll probably buy one. And and the reason being is the the computer games that I play are almost all exclusively on received through Steam. Uh, they also are not graphic heavy, you know, so they're not going to require a a massive computer build. Um, and so I think all that being said it's kind of right up my alley to be able to play my games and not be tethered to the computer. So, you know, Papers, Please, or some of these other, you know, uh, minimally uh, graphical, uh, with minimal graphical requirements and and uh, and even minimal components or, or, or mechanics that are fun to play, but I don't have to be sitting at the computer to do it. And I'd probably play them a lot more if I didn't have to be there and I could just boot it up and play it. So I don't know if it's worth seven hundred dollars uh, to do that. No, but... I don't think it is. Not when you can get a Xbox Series One S for two hundred dollars less than that. Well, you know. And now, from what I understand, that message we just saw—you probably got it too—that Game Pass is you're able to play it across all platforms. Your phone, Game Pass on your phone, your uh, your computer or the Xbox, I mean, pretty much anywhere you log in, you should be able to access those games. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty good. Your last news, or do you want? I don't, I don't know if yours is. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'll do my last news because I feel like yours is going to take a while. So, um, it's just here, there is a very interesting, and we'll link to it in the description, Kotaku think piece about how. Despite Xbox bosses saying that they want to preserve ownership and um, preserve video game culture and video game um, heritage, subscription services are actually eroding that as a concept. Um, and so Kotaku talks about, like, despite what they say, what they're doing doesn't actually align with these goals because right. we learned from PlayStation just taking you know, hundreds of games off the store that at any moment games could just suddenly cease to exist forever when right. you're relying on subscription services and store platforms to host them. And um, without physical copies, in fact, some of those games have no physical copies anymore. They're just, I, I think they count like 120 games are just going to cease to exist forever. And we're, we're never going to be able to play them again, full stop. And that's it. Um, right. So, you know, Kotaku is just discussing, like, it, it really doesn't align what they say with what they're doing, and maybe there needs to be some archival work that goes into, you know, games. If they don't want to sell them anymore, that's absolutely fine, but much like there is an internet archive, perhaps there should be a gaming archive which stores all of these games for perpetuity, because, you know, you never know what sort of game is going to be relevant or trigger memories for someone or be an important part of their childhood, so... I think um, it's an interesting piece. It's worth a read. I don't want to spoil it because I think some of these points are very interesting. Um, but that was my last piece of news. And I guess you're itching to talk about Blizzard. A little bit. Uh, but uh, to that point, I, I do feel like it's something we have talked about many, many times on this show. And I, that's why I'm such a big advocate of the physical medium, because you can't limit that person's ability to play it if we have a hard copy of it. As long as my equipment works, I'm still going to be able to play it. I mean, my old Nintendo from 1986 still plays, so it still works, and I can access those games. Uh, you know, so uh, it's just unfortunate that that is kind of the state where we're in. Um, but it does kind of seamlessly transition to that last news with Activision Blizzard and just the mess that their entire company is right now and the postmortem that they're trying to to roll out uh, after, you know, the, if anyone that hasn't been following all this, uh, there was a lawsuit filed by the state of California uh, 
due to uh, some of the labor practices there at, at Blizzard. Uh, you can find a number of really objective, I would say as objective as they could be, articles and, and, and uh, videos on YouTube. If you would like to, uh, I know Bellular does a really good one. Uh, Taliesin and Evitel, both. These are two wow-heavy news sites that have done, and both both from uh, the UK, that have done a, uh, a really good job of, of kind of presenting not only all the information, uh, but also presenting the side of, of maybe some insider information from people who work there. And, and so they're getting kind of the company line as well as some of the, the actual employees and what they have to say. So, um, and it's, and it's not good. And, uh, they are, they are hemorrhaging. They as an Activision Blizzard are hemorrhaging, uh, their sponsors for pretty much every single game. They're hemorrhaging, uh, uh, they were already hemorrhaging subscribers. But what's interesting and I think is, is important to note that if you look at the, uh, if you look at the lawsuit, there are a lot of issues that were Activision based. Now that is not to let Blizzard get off the hook because they are definitely, uh, they definitely had a number of really bad business practices. But Treyarch was, was listed as one of the big ones. Uh, and that was Call of Duty. Um, and I believe the, the other, the, one of the other companies that's there that's under Activision, not necessarily Blizzard, were the two biggest culprits for some of the most heinous of the issues. Uh, that said, they're all under the same roof. They all are headed up by Bobby Kotick. And, and so it's, you know, the people that, that need to be reprimanded and, and held their feet held to the fire and held accountable most likely will not. Be. But it does look like they're doing their best to unify and potentially unionize for the protection of their employees. I think this is a good thing for the game industry as a whole. I think yeah. what is happening, and this is probably for uh, another episode, is the game industry was a, was a, was an adolescent industry, like a juvenile industry, compared to other businesses. And you may be able to speak to this better than me, being having been in marketing. They were like a child, and they had to go through some of the, these dumb, <laughs> stupid maturation processes to get to where they're one of, like some of these other bigger businesses, because they went from being smaller businesses that could maintain on, you know, a lower number of sales to having boards being being sold publicly, having you know multi multi millionaires as at the at the head of the helm. So I think that they had to uh, they had to go through this process, unfortunately, uh, to kind of reach where some of these other businesses are. Now, but unfortunately, that means that they're going to be run like these other businesses. You know, now that they're no longer these small companies that are able to kind of put out games for gamers by gamers now they're going to be dictated like a like a a, a pop music group everything's going to be cookie cutter and, and derived and, and and submitted and you're, you're not going to get as much of uh you know the the creativity and the and the iteration on on some of the things that i think gamers really enjoy instead you're going to get microtransactions and things that just make more money you know and you're going to lose a lot yeah. of that. and that's uh, that's I think the direction that it's going, but that's because games as a business is evolving to become a legitimate multi, multi-million dollar business. People are just realizing this now. So uh, even though that's how it's been for, you know, for years. So uh, I don't, I think RIP uh, Blizzard as we knew it, as we knew them, um, that it's, it's not going to be the same company. The game is, it has, it, it is officially, objectively no longer the the MMO that it was before. I mean, there are more play, people playing Final Fantasy right now than, than World of Warcraft. And uh, this is a statistic that is easily uh, uh, easily researched at this point. And, and apparently, from what I understand, a better game. But um, it, will be, it will be interesting to see what happens from here because uh, the last thing that I heard, uh, and I, watched, I was watching uh, Jim Sterling's Jim Stephanie Sterling this morning that uh, they 
as in Activision Blizzard, hired the same law firm that Amazon did. Oh, yeah, to, I bet they did. <laughs> to cut the legs out from under uh, any potential unionization of the employees. Yeah. Um, so it's, I don't really even think it has much to do with them becoming a huge company because CD Projekt Red is still a very small company and they backtrack on nearly every promise they made in the whole development cycle for um, the Cyberpunk 2077. So I think there's just a certain point for me where the greed overtakes any promises oh, they absolutely. made to the community or, or their best efforts or, you know, um, it, it, there just seems to be a point where they're like, oh, wait a minute, if we exploit the workers, then at the top, we can make more money. And I think maybe right. the adage that power corrupts absolutely is is true. You know, there's absolutely. just a point where no matter how good of a job you're trying to do, when you start having stakeholders and, you know, people, you know, pulling you in one direction or another, it's always the workers that seem to suffer, you know, for, for these um, video game development companies. And I think there's very few examples of that not happening. I would say maybe No Man's Sky and the development team behind there is probably the best example of a small team actually trying to deliver what they said they were going to deliver. Did they do it on day one? No, but I don't feel like they exploited the workers in the process of fixing a game and releasing it to a standard that people expected. Um, but they're, they are also a small studio. And I think once there's immense pressure and once you believe that you have a multi-million dollar or billion dollar game on your hands, I think all these human rights and workers' rights and, you know, even Ubisoft, you know, the, the culture of um, abuse that was present from the top down and people are just like, well, this is the way it is because this is the only game in town. And, you know, it's, it's quite a shame, but, you know, having worked in many industries myself, I can say that there are systemic issues sort of throughout most industries that become purveyant because the people that work in them all sort of think the same way about how things should happen. You know, I'm, I'm ex-casino industry and casino industry has a lot of positive things, but it also has a fairly strong current of sexism that goes through the whole thing. You know, and when I left that industry and I went into hotels as my next industry, wow, it was really different. I was like, oh, wow, none of these men are lechy. This is really unusual. And it shouldn't have been uh, it shouldn't have been something that happened, but it was just something I had gotten so used to um, working in a sin industry. Um, and I think maybe that's the same way, you know, people working in the video game industry just get so used to getting treated badly that when they leave the industry or go to a very small studio, they're just surprised that they can achieve the same things without getting their workers' rights violated or human rights violated or, you know, yeah. any other number of protected classes violated. So um, I think it is another topic. I think we should discuss it because this is now, I think, the fifth significant workers' rights controversy in the last year, starting with Ubisoft, then you've got um, Blizzard, you've got Gut's political stance as well, which we briefly talked about. Um, you've got CD Projekt Red and their uh, sort of untruths. And then just generally the, the move um, to make gambling crunch, just a part of rock our all yeah, there's just so many. So it would be interesting, yeah, to discuss it. Although, thankfully, our topic for today is a little more lighthearted because that one's not going to be It's much lighter. <laughs> We're going to shift gears now. So, uh, so yes, absolutely. So let's shift gears. Our topic for today is, uh, you know, the the basically the the world, the, the most memorable world, the video game world that uh, that we've experienced. And and it doesn't. I don't guess it necessarily has to be a, um, you know, a, a just a strictly positive one where maybe I'd like to live there, but just most memorable, right? Because that's how I looked at it. Yeah, and just it most memorable. You don't have to live there, but like it needs to just be seared into your mind, and when oh, you absolutely. think about it, you automatically it comes Everyone to mind. No I question. Have emotional attachment to. I don't necessarily Same. want to live in most of them. <laughs> Same. So, I have five. Uh, I have five. It looks like you have I five. I have five as well, so you go first. Sweet. Okay, so I'm going to start with 
the one I would absolutely not want to live in, but is probably seared most deeply into my soul, and that is Silent Hill. Um, most recently, I watched a, a video, if you haven't had a chance, the Scary Game Squad. It's a really good, it's a 12-part series, and it's almost like 45 minutes to an hour each episode, but they do a walkthrough of the entire game and uh, for Silent Hill 2. Oh. And so, yeah, and so Silent Hill 2, which is, to me, the most memorable of all of their, of, of the iterations of that series. Uh, but Silent Hill is such a, a, a uh, it, it's uh, such a memorable, it is a character in the game, you know. So if anybody who's ever played the game or maybe even heard or adjacent to the game, you played PT, you know enough about that the, the city in and of itself kind of takes a life of its own. So uh, whether it be the ashy, smoky atmosphere or the strange people that inhabit it that seem to just be, uh, you know, extensions of the, what's real and what's not real. It's just, and, and, they're, and, the, and the places in Silent Hill are the same. They've got like the diner and the hospital and the church and the, and the and the school and the you know and then from there it just goes downhill and gets even creepier and crazier. But if you've ever played a Silent Hill game or been in the world, it has a it has an iconic feel unlike any other world that you've ever been in. So yeah, for sure. One of the most memorable definitely wouldn't visit ever. If we're going there. I'm not <laughs> So. Yeah, no hard pass. Yep. <laughs> All right, hard well, uh, my first one is um, Subnautica, because I think it's one of the few underwater games that feels totally realized. You know, there are different sections of, of the map that feel differently. There are, you know, caves you can go into where these, like, exploding fish will just totally kill you to death if you go in there. You know, there are big, huge... <laughs> fish hiding in places that will kill you. They're big, huge fish swimming around. They're absolutely fine. You know, like there are good peaks and troughs. It's colorful. Um, it's believable. And if you're like me and you're sort of scared of deep water, uh, you could just play during the day for a, a less scary sensation. Uh, I feel like at night is when it really starts to get quite scary. Um, I enjoyed playing it and I can in my mind sort of picture the different fish character models and things like that that they had because they were so unique and the fish that you interact with sort of early in the game like the peepers and things like that that you need to get your early crafting material you just see so many of them that they just kind of iconically come to mind when you think about it um it is an interesting sort of base building stroke action rpg sort of two for hybrid um, is it the best game I've ever played? No, but in terms of memorable video game worlds, it is so unlike most video games that you play for the simple fact that it's underwater um, right. that I think I think it qualifies as memorable. And no, I would not want to live there because that is horrifying. <laughs> it's, it, it may be more horrifying than Silent Hill because it's too real. It's too real for me. That would be... I know, you don't, li you don't like Big Fish. No, it's a no... <laughs> Nope. No, ma'am. Do not. Do not like it. Not at all. Um, the next one for me is uh, Final Fantasy VI, specifically Final Fantasy VI. It is, uh, of all the worlds, it seemed to be the most, um, it, the easiest one I think I could have placed myself in. I think it was the one I got most immersed in, in terms of the world. And I think that had a lot to do with maybe how old I was when I was playing it. So this one is, this is Final Fantasy III in the U.S., and it's, it is, um, it starts out in a very steampunk, much like Final Fantasy VII, kind of that atmosphere, uh, steampunkish, uh, and then goes post-apocalyptic. And, and all of it, believable, uh, there's, it's, it was the biggest world in Final Fantasy up to that point, and so, and probably, uh, again, like I said, because of the age when I played it, I think I was a sophomore in high school, maybe sophomore or junior in high school when I played this one. And so it was right there towards the tail end of, 
I guess the JRPG, my ability to sit and play for eight or nine hours at a time if I if I just wanted to. Uh, and so I really got immersed in this world. And um, there are so many characters, and, and, and depending on how you play, you might not even get all of the characters. Uh, and and uh, so you'll miss out on part of the story if you don't do it right. So I think the, the combination of when I played this and uh, this being probably arguably one of the, if not the best, of the Final Fantasy. And that's arguable. A lot of people say it's Final Fantasy VII. Um, I really like Final Fantasy VII, but I think this is probably my favorite, if I had to pick one of, of all. And, uh, yeah, I really like the steampunk, the steampunk world. The music is probably, to me, the, the music that I always think of, since I, I listen to video game music all the time. Um, and so this is one of the soundtracks that pops up on that, on that playlist a lot. Always I can only that. ever remember Jen Stephanie Sterling saying, I played a beautiful game with beautiful boys. Look at all the beautiful boys. <laughs> and now I can't look at any Final Fantasy without thinking about the beautiful boys. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it was never going to be for me, was it? But Final Fantasy is iconic. And I can, even though I've never played it myself, I can once again vividly picture the world. So I think yeah. it's... Um, so the next one for me, I think quite obviously in terms of, you know, world building and, and world design is going to be Bioshock. I just think it's mechanisms, you know, it's, it's UI, it's um, character design was just so iconic at the time. Now, there have been other games that have tried to capture that sort of Bioshock distress 1930s steampunk-esque feel, um, but I don't think they've been as successful as the original Bioshock in creating a complete end-to-end -end, um, look and feel. I mean, even the menus seemed at home um, with the rest of the game. Now, I think you could almost say um, Fallout is just as successful at, at that, but I think Bioshock, because more of it was interior, and this is why I chose that over Fallout, more of Bioshock takes place indoors, which I feel like gives them more opportunity to make iconic set design. Um, and just the different set pieces, the different rooms, the half flooded this and that, you know, like I sort of, when I picture it, I can see the abandoned theater with, you know, the chandelier cracks the floor and, you know, like I can see the slicers running about and skittering up walls and stuff. Like it was very successful at the time. And even though it isn't that different from Fallout, although a bit earlier in terms of American decor, um, I think because it was all inside, the very first Bioshock was all inside, it, it was more impactful. Later on, as Bioshock went on as a series and you had external things, I feel like they lost some of that stuff to a certain degree because it wasn't it, it wasn't as self-contained. So you had areas where you're just walking through a town that could have been any town, including Be Happy Few or perhaps even Fallout or, you know, like um, in that degree, I would probably give it to the Fallout for like wild, expansive world that's obviously been damaged by an atomic bomb. Like, yeah, that's an aesthetic. But I feel like the first Bioshock was more successful in terms of what I remember when I picture it. Yeah, I would say, well, and... and Bioshock is on my list as well, and I don't think if you play that game and this and with with all the factors, you know, the topic for today, and if you've ever played that game, that you could leave it off the list just because the first Bioshock is so um, Rapture is just really immersive, and it's one of those games where even though it seems it's contained in that city under the water, and there is that claustrophobic, you know, feel on the outside. It did not feel like a really small world, even though you were kind of on rails to a degree. I mean, they would direct you where you needed to go. The story was told so well. Uh, and and it's, it was distracting how they told the story. So, like, if you didn't want to listen to the story, you just wanted to play, you could play the tapes and just go and not listen to them or whatever, because nothing made you stand right there and listen to the story. But if you wanted to, you could listen to it it would it filled in the gaps with what you're doing and why you're doing it, and it just was it just seemed to seamlessly 
piece together the narrative with the action at the same time. And one of the it was that's one of my top ten all time favorite games because of the world. Another place I don't want to live or visit uh, either. No, I'll pass. But but to think about, I know we had that as a topic, uh, you know, a while ago. Of, you know, you know, what world would you want to live in? You know, and and Deus Ex and some of these others where you're uh, you're able to add technology to your body or change your biology so that you have powers. I mean, it's at least something to think about. The exchange of these powers for your sanity. Well, that's that's something else. So. <laughs> Probably not. So yeah. So Bioshock was on my list as well for those for those reasons and, and more. Excellent. It's great, great place. Very memorable. So very memorable. Uh, so the next one for me is, um, and I thought about this for a long time because I play a lot of sci-fi games, sci-fi RPGs, like sci-fi action. Um, and so I thought about it for a long time, and then I thought about fantasy in general. You know, things like The Witcher, things like um, D&D, things like Diablo, like, you know, for me, like, what is the most iconic world sort of within that space I've seen in a long time? And I'm probably going to take a bit of a left field here and say that for me, it's the Outer Worlds. And it's the Outer Worlds because I feel like they achieved a pop art style that is reminiscent of your Flash Gordons, yada, yada while still maintaining a classic fantasy-esque RPG feel. Um, and you had world exploration. You had these really fantastical creatures that you've never seen before. It was bright. It was colorful. Um, and it wasn't horrifying in any way, which I feel like a lot of these games, they have you know fear-based elements and things. I never felt afraid. I, I sort of felt like a explorer at the peak of my, you know, whatever, is there things they could have done better for the game itself? Sure. But in terms of the world design, I thought it was very successful. Every place that you went to felt like part of the same universe, but slightly different aesthetics, depending on where you were in the game and what planet you were on. You know, I don't want to give too many spoilers because if you haven't played it, it's a very excellent game. And I would suggest playing it. Um, but if I was going to sort of take all of the fantasy sci-fi RPGs, squish them together, I think The Outer Worlds is the most successful in that space in terms of an art style and a design that I remember as classically that game. Because initially I, I had thought about The Witcher or um, Mass Effect or whatever, but actually... There's not a whole lot of iconic design in that. And aside from a few key moments where I was like, oh, the Citadel, this is fancy. Or like, oh, I've got the Normandy, you know, it's good. Or, you know, I'm, I'm at the Bravel or I'm doing a Gwent, whatever. And I can sort of remember those moments. Um, generally, I don't feel like there was much in the rest of it that I would say is truly iconic. Great, beautiful, fun, exciting, sure. But truly iconic, maybe not. Right. And I right. Know that's probably a controversial opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, iconic, I don't know either. I mean, and I don't know that, uh, you know, all of these would be as iconic. Like, I mean, Silent Hill is very distinct. Um, lots of places are, you know, dystopian and, and cyberpunky like Final Fantasy. Bioshock, iconic, I think. It's very distinct as well. So, um, for me, I've, you know, got two more and, and, uh, I think that one of the things that makes <laughs> you can't I can't personally separate it uh, when I'm when I'm thinking about these worlds and these games and, and what makes them so memorable uh, is I can't separate the music from the game. And I think a lot of time the music has a lot to do with why I'm so immersed not only in the game and the narrative, but also the world um, and probably my favorite game music of all time is tied to uh, a world that is not not especially uh, fantastical or different than any other fantasy world but uh, because the music was so good it has made it memorable I can hear it in my head as we, as I'm talking about it uh, and that is uh, a Sega CD game called Dark Wizard and Dark oh my Wizard, god yeah that one does come up every once in a while yeah yeah and it's 
it's got it has the best video game music uh, of any game that I've ever played. And again, in my opinion, but um, <clears throat> what I really enjoyed and appreciated about it is you've got four characters that you can play. Each character has their own specific music, and each and the music is specific based on what's happening. So uh, you've got this four four to six minute background like just background music specifically for your character. So if you're playing Robin, who's Robin is this female knight. Robin has, you know, each character has their own specific armies, and this is a a tactical hexagonal role playing game. You know, so it's a strategy game where you place your characters into the hexagons and each character has a certain number of spaces they can move. Um, and you've got to move your army towards their army. They have to move their army towards yours. If you want to, when they actually fight, there is a cinematic cutscene that shows them fight. It takes it a lot longer for the matches to play out that way. So you can skip that and it'll do it all just like numbers at the top. And, you know, math, the math is already done for you, but. I liked the cinematics. It made it a little more immersive. <clears throat> that said, uh, it was, it's, uh, it's, it, I mean, it's, it would be similar to the narration of, of, uh, is it, uh, oh man, is it Ian McKellen? Gandalf? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the narrator of Dark Wizard sounds a lot like Ian McKellen. It's not, but it sounds like it. And he narrates this fantasy world. And he's telling you the story. So when the game opens up, he's like long ago, so and so far away lands, and they tell the story of these people. And sometimes in between, you'll get cutscenes where you'll hear the voices again. Um, but yeah, the music just made this otherwise kind of a potentially forgettable fantasy world uh, so much more memorable. That and the characters. And the characters are, are, just as memorable and and depending on who you pick it completely changes the end of the story so you could play it four times and you get four different endings based on who was on the throne at the end so um probably one of those games that has withstood the test of time uh as a sega cd game it's over 20 years old and it is still probably one of the highest rated games on sega cd i can't believe that they haven't tried to move it over record it somewhere because uh, maybe because of the genre of the game that maybe there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of, a lot of, uh, there's not a big calling for tactical games anymore, maybe, but, um, I think there's a niche for it. And I, I definitely, uh, based on the Metacritic scores, it's one of those, I think people are still looking for, would still play very, very good music, very, which just elevates the rest of the elements of the game. So that's my number four. Well, um, I didn't initially have any retro games in my list because uh, I'm a bit of a noob and started playing sort of with the SNES and the first console that I bought and owned outright was the original Xbox. So it makes me a bit more of a modern gamer. But actually, if you ask me to describe the game world of Mario, I could do it perfectly. And so that is probably a very memorable video game world. Even though I, I didn't own the system myself on the original Nintendo, I did play it many times at family gatherings. My uncle had it. He also had Duck Hunt, another game that I could iconically just picture directly now. Um, and I think you could probably say that about a fair few like retro video games. But if I was going to once again award sort of the top of the class, I think anyone who has ever played a retro video game would be familiar with Mario and you would be able to imagine that world it comes directly to mind the green pipes the you know the flagpole at the end the swirling things of fire the you know the blocks that you break like you know these became video game tropes that we have to this day in platformers but they were brand new for that game and um, iconic sort of world design was part and parcel of a platformer because the world design sort of was the puzzle. Um, So I had to include it, even though it isn't my favorite video game by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, Mario is super hard and I'm really terrible at it. Um, It is (laughs) iconic in terms of a video game world. And I think a list would be incomplete without at least one retro game. 
Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I'm proud of you for for including it. Um, I know that was hard. So proud of you. I am. Uh, my my last one is probably the one world on here that I I think I would be okay inhabiting, and uh, to me is is memorable for a lot of reasons, and and it may be that this is my favorite game of all time. And I can't, I can't separate uh, the series. So Mass Effect, Mass Effect for me is is uh, the world. It's probably my favorite game or series of games of all time. My favorite game story of all time. The more I have thought about it, I thought about it a lot this summer too because uh, of the the remaster that was released. Um, it's the music as well as the world as well as the books. So when the first did you uh, say the books? Get out of here, you nerd! <laughs> I know, I know. We'll see the. the Get books. out of here, you nerd! I read, the, I read the. I think it's Annihilation. I can't remember what, what the title of the book is. The first one about Anderson, though. So Anderson as a character, you know, is Shepard's commanding mm-hmm. officer, and it talks about his journey and his his series of adventures before he becomes, you know, the the admiral, and uh, and you know he meets. You know, other, uh, oh, what is, what is, uh, Theron and, and, uh, Garrus's race? What is their race? The... Oh, I don't remember. I, I... remember the race. Well, their race is one the of the reptilian ones. ones. Yeah. They're one of the first ones that they meet. The whole yeah. idea of finding the Mass Effect relay and all of these things, it seemed like it wasn't that far fetched for us to have gone just to the edge of our solar system. And found this Mass Effect relay, and then because of that technology, within just a hundred years, we had technology far beyond anything we'd ever done before. We were able to just. But listen, the story is not far fetched, but I'm really gonna, I'm gonna have to hear why the world is that iconic because the world is pictures of scenes, but not a lot. The the world and I love that game. The world's not iconic. The world is just memorable to me because, again, I'm tying, I'm tying all of it together. To to me, it was very livable. It was it was lived in. It was real. It was like I could see it. And and after reading the books and playing the game, if I had just played the games, I probably wouldn't feel that way because you're so disconnected from every planet and every space station that you go on to. It's like it's I just I flew my ship over there, but it was just a picture of a ship going there. And then you show up on the planet. Had I not read the books and had so much more to fill in the gaps between these planets mm-hmm. and races that they had met, uh, and then associate that with probably one of the better synth uh, soundtracks to a video game ever. Um, I can't even, I can't name the songs, but I can tell you what's happening in almost every time I hear it. Like the when you open the world map, I used to listen to that song for you know 20 or 30 minutes at a time because I didn't know what I was doing and sometimes I'd set the controller down and I'd have to go do something but I come back and that song would just still be playing but it's such a good I guess is it what did they call it a basically an earwig or, or a sure we'll take earwig you know where where it crawls into your head and you just can't get rid of it but it wasn't unpleasant it's a it's music that that kind of it it filled in the gaps just like the books did and made the world livable and so it's, it was like, okay, I have all these places. That's some place that I could not only see living, but I think I'd be cool with it. And it seemed like a Andromeda aside. We're not talking about that game. We're talking about just the first three. Um, yeah, for me, and not it's, it's, it's no different to me than really Dark Wizard in terms of the world. There's nothing necessarily special about it. Had it not had these other elements that elevated it beyond just just a sci-fi show or just a sci-fi game. It it had uh, it had it had more to it, and it, to me, it made it uh, a living, breathing place that that I could totally see. See, actually, for out of all these, see myself living. So. I'm gonna dispute that once again. Stacy has not followed the spirit of the assigned writer. Instead of just the <laughs> like plus the books, plus the sprinkling of music, plus I like the story, plus my favorite games. So once again, Stacy's cheating. It's fine. It's fine. I We're feel, not surprised. This is classic. I feel like if I didn't, what kind of show would it be? 
<laughs> so I, didn't, so I didn't break the rules already. It is, I, you know, retro rebel. Um, well, yeah, just so as long as you accept that that was the assignment and you have once again interpreted the assignment as you would like. <laughs> <laughs> I accept and take full responsibility. Excellent. Uh, that allows me to move on to my final pick, which yes. is bizarrely Sleeping Dogs. Now, these aren't in any particular order, but Sleeping Dogs and what makes it so venerable, ironically, is, is a single NPC, and it's the Pork Bun Guy. And the Pork Bun Guy never stops asking you if you could use a pork bun. In fact, he tells you, you look like you could use a pork bun. And on YouTube, there is a 10-hour loop of all the different quotes that the pork bun guy will say to you when you go past his stand. And even though it's a very interesting sort of Hong Kong-esque, uh, you know, drug cartel, you know, GTA but Asian sort of uh, video game. It's great. It's got interesting story and fun characters and good voice acting and the combat's all right and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But as far as the world, there's just this one NPC and boy, he is an earwig. He just gets stuck in your head. You play his accent over and over again, which I'm not going to do because I'm fairly sure that's offensive. And uh, on YouTube, there's actually, you can watch 10 hour cut of the port one guy from Sleeping Dogs if you want. Um, but it, it was very memorable in a lighthearted sort of fun way. It's one of the few games that I've played sort of in recent memory that I would call like an action RPG that didn't feel too heavy handed, which, which I thought was, was kind of nice. Um, and yeah, the pork bun guy has seared that game into my memory forever. You know, have you played any of the Yakuza games? I have them downloaded. I haven't played them yet. I think I played Like a Dragon. I think the 80s one. I think that's nice. the one. I think that's the 80s one. Um, I, and I played a little bit of Sleeping Dogs. I think Sleeping Dogs is a better game. If you like, you know, because it's, it's, it's not quite as arcadey because Yakuza is very arcadey. So, uh, but it, but enjoyable. It kind of sounded like a, a little bit of the same there though. Both good games. Well, Yes. That wraps up this episode of Retro Rebel. I want to thank Amanda for this week's discussion. All of the notes from this week's episode will be posted on our site, Facebook.com. If you'd like to add to the discussion or reach out with questions, sound off in the comments or messages on Facebook or Instagram at Retro Rebel Podcast. And please head over to wherever you get the podcast and rate us for the episode. Until the next time. See you later.